Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Dave Taylor, who is professor of marketing at DU, a digital storyteller across a wide variety of platforms, and the author of something like 22 or 23 books we're not exactly sure. Dave, thanks for being on the show. Hey, it's fun to be here, and sorry I couldn't pin down the number of books, but it's been over a really long period of time, so I could go and like <laughs> count the books on my shelf, but I'm not sure that would be accurate either. Right, exactly. <laughs> so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background and your interests? All right. Well, let's see. Um, I predate the internet. I actually got online back when we were using acoustic modems and people were hosting BBSs in their living rooms and had racks of modems. Tom, you might remember this. What are all right? these oh, words yeah. you're saying? <laughs> acoustic <laughs> modems. What you... Yeah, Trent doesn't so, even know about dial telephones. <laughs> yeah, so, so basically the idea was, what if we didn't actually have internet itself? How would we then have our computers talk to each other? And so they basically would phone each other on, and make phone calls and send data back and forth. So um, I was around through the whole birth of the internet, really. I actually attended the meetings where we discussed whether or not to allow commercial use of the ARPANET. Obviously, <laughs> we decided to do that, which then went from being a bunch of universities to being like everything, including your light switch and your microphone. Right. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's it's been a remarkable journey to watch all of this. And I don't think really anyone was prescient enough to imagine a world where like IP4 would run out of numbers and we would literally need to reinvent the protocol of the internet because there's so many devices now. And just in my own home, I would say that I probably have upwards of 70 devices hooked up to my Wi-Fi at any moment from TVs to light bulbs to light switches to thermostats, you name it, it's probably somewhere on my internet. And no, that's not an invitation to turn all of this on at four in the morning. Right. <laughs> yeah, what, one of the things that Trent didn't mention is that you end up reviewing lots of products and and people will send you products. And so you get to, you get to be a guinea pig of sorts and trying out gadgets and things and then you can put either your blessing on it or you can throw it in the trash. Um, right. So, <laughs> so, so, mu it. so much of yeah. your house is built around these gadgets. Yeah. I mean, I've had a smart ish home for years. I always like to say that I have a smart home in dumb increments <laughs> because I mean, this is sort of the state of the yard is you, you think, Oh, well, wouldn't it be cool if like when I drove up, my garage door opened, my lights turned on, my coffee maker started, and maybe my TV tuned to whatever channel is showing the latest Hitchcock movie because it knows that's what I like. Well, that's seven different companies using four different protocols. So the state of the art with smart homes is that nothing talks to each other, which is ironic because this has really been the state of networking for decades now. 
And if you ask any of these vendors, you go to someone like Samsung, they'll say, well, just buy everything Samsung and you've solved the problem. But that's not really a solution. You know? So the interoperability of smart homes is definitely not there. And I think you see exactly that same sort of silo problem when you look at streaming channels, right? So I would really like to watch A Clockwork Orange tonight. Okay, well, I subscribe to Disney Plus and Peacock and Apple TV Plus and Xfinity and Netflix and Amazon Prime Video. And I have no idea which one has that movie, if any. And it's up to me to figure it out. That is a very broken system, even as bits of it, like glimmers of it, are remarkably futuristic. So, Tom, you know, you live with one foot in the future, which really you should have bought a lot of Bitcoin a while back. <laughs> so, so what's your take on all this? Do you think that we'll ever like solve any of these fundamental interoperability problems? Yeah, I think uh, something new has to come along and stomp all over everything we have right now. That's that's usually what it takes to solve some of these issues. Um, that's uh, these are not easy problems to solve, and especially when you get uh, companies that are this entrenched in their their own system of doing things. Yeah, the interesting thing is that actually Samsung's just obsoleting their SmartThings control center after having people for years invest in that for their home security, have it be able to work with Samsung phones and Samsung televisions. Some number counter looked at the spreadsheet earlier this year and said, we need to stop this product. We need to stop selling it and we need to stop supporting it. So they sent out an email to every single registered user saying, sorry, you got 30 days. Wow. And that again, is it, yeah, it's an, or it might've been 90 days, whatever it was, it was still this sort of nightmarish scenario where, wait, you told me that if I invested in using yours as the underlying ecosystem, that I would finally have everything work together. Well, I'm not going to go buy a new 70 inch TV and I'm not going to buy a new cell phone and, you know, and all of this sort of stuff. So, how do I solve that problem? And I just feel like facets of the moment of time we're in are really fascinating. There's so much amazing technology out there. The idea that I can just put a watch on my wrist and it can monitor my health and tell me how to improve my sleep. That's pretty cool. But you know, don't expect to collect that data if you have an Apple watch and an Android phone because they don't talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. That, that is pretty remarkable. <laughs> yeah, uh, Trent and I have been doing a lot of research on uh, maybe starting a quantum computer accelerator, and we've kind of come to the conclusion that quantum computing is at, in the ENIAC computer uh, uh, era of, uh, of advancement. And, and a lot of the industry is trying to solve the problem of should we use VHS or Betamax and, uh, because there's competing standards. And uh, so many of the industries that we've created today have never solved that problem. We just have competing standards all over the place. Um, yeah. Is there a, a, a rule of thumb, a good way of solving that? You know, I think that the issue that we have is that we have signed up for the fastest possible technological evolution of products. 
And the cost of that is that the marketplace is the space in which evolution occurs. So you can imagine a different world where all the vendors get together and they all argue and then they vote. And you know what? Sony wins. We're just going to use the Sony system for the next 20 years. And that's the way it is. And we consumers never see any of the other possibilities. But we have a system instead where they just push out every possible thing. They have laser discs. They have Blu-ray versus, what was it, um, DVD-R, whatever it was. Do you remember that one year at CES, Tom, where they had little red and blue flags on every DVD player? And it would denote which of the two digital protocols that player used. And there was one company that licensed all the chips and built a player that could play both formats and I'm pretty sure they no longer exist right? because <laughs> yeah. you would think that would be a logical solution. But in fact, the market had to decide and we had to pick Blu-ray so that the other technologies just went away. Because, of course, if you're like Paramount Pictures, you don't want to say we're going to release this in 37 digital formats and 109 physical formats because we want to make sure that every single consumer gets exactly what they want. I thought you're going to say that we either had to take the red or the green pill. (laughs) (laughs) As long as I have those cool sunglasses, we're good. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So, I mean, where do you come down on that debate then? Do you think it would be wiser to have the vendors get together and and have this sort of glacial process where they hammer everything out in advance? Because, I mean, I can see a number of problems with that as well. I'm not sure that either one is better. I will say that... um, Back in the day, I worked at Hewlett Packard at HP Labs, and we were doing research. And this was just as the internet was coming on. And um, the internet protocol is built on something called TCP IP, mm-hmm. which is transmission control protocol, internet protocol. And what happened was that HP's engineers said, huh, we're looking at this TCP IP, and there's some really bad design decisions they made, so we're going to fix it. And so what happens is you fix it and now you can't talk to the other systems. So this is actually true. They used to have what they called TCP IP bake-offs. And I remember going to a couple where it was a big warehouse or an airplane hangar and each company that was a hardware vendor would have a table and they'd bring in a computer or two and they'd all plug them into each other. And it was all just interoperability testing, right? Had they not have done that, we wouldn't have the internet. But had they have decided in advance, we have this one protocol and that's all we're going to do and we're never going to evolve it, then we might not have the fast internet because they might not have designed a protocol anticipating 30 years later that we would have fiber optics that are screamingly fast. Right. You know, so the sad reality (laughs) is I think that for all the benefits we get for this technological age that we're in, part of the cost of that is that each of us will inevitably travel down some obsolete paths and have to have obsolete hardware. (laughs) And sorry, maybe you can plug something into the back and make it work again. Yeah, and our landfills are filling up with obsolete hardware. (laughs) Right, with rare earth metals that they can't pull out of them so that you know we can't make enough chips to make new gear. So we're chucking all the old gear that has all all that stuff in it. It's just... It's yeah. not pretty. Yeah, I keep saying that the the most valuable land in the future is going to be our landfills, um, because that's where we've buried all of our 
uh, natural resources. And so it's going to be up to somebody that can invent a robotic earthworm that can go through and dig it all out and mine out all the valuable resources and replace it with good soil. <laughs> that is an interesting idea. I, I, I like how you think. I mean, it's no different to what they're working on with salvaging obsolete satellites in space. Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard about that. What are they doing there? Um, there's actually a Colorado-based company that just got, I think, a NASA contract to build a design that they have to launch a basically junk and obsolete satellite scooper and collector in space that would be able to move to different orbital planes and zero in and using, I think, manipulator arms actually grab things. Because otherwise, we're just going to end up with this really complicated 3D sort of concentric spheres of really fast moving garbage until it eventually all comes into the earth as, you know, I don't know, as, as um, meteors or something, which I guess would be visually exciting, but probably not optimal, especially as we're starting to get closer and closer to things like orbiting space hotels. Right, exactly. I, right. I wonder what the, um, what's the profit model there? I mean, they got the NASA grant, but I assume at some point they'll have to actually make money with it. So is there enough in a satellite to make it worth sending a robot up to bring back down to, to well, harvest whatever's in it? I think there's going to have to be some sort of a taxation system where if you want to launch something, you know, you want to put up a thousand satellites for your ground-based internet. All right. Well, we charge a million dollars a satellite that goes into a pool that helps clean up all the messes that are up there and you don't have to pay, but then you are able to use any launch facility. Interesting. Okay. That's one way to internalize that externality for sure. So, yeah, I guess Elon Musk beat the people that are coming up with the tax for that. Is that right? He, he's been ahead of those yeah, people he, for quite ahead some time. Ahead of the curve, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's actually in his Tesla orbiting the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> so who's the Elon that we see? Is that, is that just like a really convincing deep fake? Something That's out of Boston Dynamics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, haven't you ever seen Westworld? <laughs> I have not actually. I've heard good things about it, though. People keep telling me I need to check it out. They're like, it's right up your alley. So one of, the, one of these days I'll make time for that. When Tom's standing right by the power plug for four hours, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> right. <laughs> the Tom bot. Uh, well, when I came down here, he, he got the times mixed up and he thought this was at six. That's normally when we record. So he was thinking about taking a nap and I woke him up. So maybe he was like recharging there for a. Oh, for yeah. A of time. Well, yeah. I Every once in a while. <laughs> the batteries. Yeah. I have to change them out. <laughs> so so what are you going to do with uh, once Samsung deprecates its tech? What are you going to do to re smarten your house? Well, that. <laughs> For me, that worked out really well because actually about a year ago, I migrated from the Samsung SmartThings control system to the Comcast Xfinity control system, which of course required me putting in an entirely new set of sensors everywhere. So I have doors with obsolete sensors on them that I don't want to take off because then I get that sticky residue. Mm -hmm. So it looks better to leave a dead sensor on there than to actually just have that residue and then have to figure out if I can find a matching paint. You know, and this is these are the problems that occupy in the Dave's day. Yeah. <laughs> it's life in the technological age. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago we wouldn't have had this discussion because frankly, we would live in the same technological world that our parents lived in or their parents. 
And 500 years ago, we wouldn't even imagine. I mean, what are we going to do? Have a better sword? Ooh, that's going to change my life. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. One side of Dave's personality that um, um, he's he actually goes out and watches movies and he does movie reviews. Yep. And uh, he gets to evaluate all the, and, and I'm, I'm curious as to what your thinking is, is how movies change after COVID, the post-COVID storytellers and how their thinking shifts and changes as a result of this massive demarcation point in human history. Yeah, I will say that probably getting funding for an apocalyptic pandemic movie is hard. Because <laughs> right. I'm not sure anyone wants to go into the theater and watch that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I have to say that I think that it's going to normalize pretty darn fast. And we're already seeing that is as the theaters are starting to open up, we're seeing people swarming back into the movie theaters because they really, you know, seeing a movie, watching TV, really consuming any media has become a social event. So I can remember like going to a bar with friends and we'd watch MMA fights, right? Yeah. Or if it was a World Cup game, going to a bar with a hundred other crazy people where everyone's screaming and beating drums and supporting their team. And that's a thousand times more fun and entertaining than sitting at home and listening to the piped in soundtrack that might or might not actually represent fan reactions. So I actually think that while this has opened up a lot of doors on the streaming side and you know that has a lot of really interesting implications i think the majority of people are going to get back into that movie theater as fast as they can however i do think there's also a trend that we've been seeing over at least the last decade that home theaters are getting more accessible and better so last week um hbo co-released Kong versus Godzilla. Right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Godzilla versus King Kong. Yep. Yeah. My kids went and saw that in the theater. I was too busy, so I watched it on HBO streaming. And then we compared notes the next day. You know, that was not an option a decade ago. Yeah. And so, I don't know so. whether it will go back. I think a lot of studios are missing out on that revenue stream. You know, they're like, well, we made 60 mil, but we were kind of anticipating making 600 million. And channels like Netflix and HBO can't just say, here's $500 million. So now you've you know, made up all that lost revenue. I mean, they're writing some really big checks, but not as big as potentially the box office would yield. So the industry is going to push, but it's really in our favor because they really are going to have to deal with the things we don't like about the movie theater experience like the person in front of us talking or being on their smartphone in the middle of the of the movie right right if i'm at home i can pause the movie and go to the bathroom so if my kids are on the phone whatever i'll watch it again in an hour but if i'm in a movie theater there's very little more annoying than someone seven rows down texting their friend with a nice bright screen in a dark scene in a dramatic movie right that's why i take squirt guns or a um, sack of pennies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice little blow dart. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Alamo is, is where I watch a lot of my movies. So, and, so there's more money than ever uh, out there for original content for movies and television. And, um, uh, and so 
anybody that wants to get into this industry, that's probably the best opportunity now that's ever been in all history. Um, and uh, I'm curious as to what you're thinking is how that changes the, the makeup of things. Because, I mean, Netflix is dumping billions of dollars, Apple and uh, Amazon Prime, they're dumping billions into original content. And so every mom and pop studio can suddenly start making movies. And some of it is not very good. <laughs> that was put very, very nicely. <laughs> I mean, it is really a golden era. There is an amazing glut of excellent content. I mean, every yeah. single week, I'll just be poking around on something like Amazon Prime and, oh, what's this series from 17 years ago that I never even heard of? And I'll start watching it. It's like, this is really good. Yeah. How has this has been an obscurity and it never made it on commercial TV? Because now, just like we saw with the rise of the internet and the web itself, is now we can have smaller communities that are enough to make something be successful. And so you're right that from a streaming perspective, it's a fantastic time to be a content producer and you can make it for a smaller and smaller and smaller audience. So if you wanna make a movie that's a mystery set in a community of transgender youngsters, okay, well, maybe you know, the WB isn't going to be picking that one up because they might think <laughs> there's not enough general audience, right. but you can find a smaller channel. You can find a smaller venue for it, or you can publish it yourself. Just put it on something like Vimeo right. in super HD and just start spreading the word. And you only need thousands or tens of thousands of views to start using that as a stepping stone to bigger productions. And I think that's fantastic because for too long, media has really been managed and controlled by the people that are in control. And so things all had a very homogeneous look. You know, I love old movies, but man, they all sure look alike after a while. Yeah, I don't <laughs> doubt that. That's sort of the dynamic we've seen with the rise of, of YouTube influencers and content creators as well, right? It's just that once you have the platform, you don't need that much for it to be profitable and to, to be able to make it work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and again, that's the example of sort of self-publishing and making a success of it. And, you know, the, the sort of modern influencers and that on the TikTok and all that, I think that that tends to be more novelty driven. And, you know, I'm kind of jealous of these people that do crazy stunts in their front yard and, and earn a million dollars a month. Um, right. <laughs> but there's also really dozens of them across billions of people on our planet. So, you know, what's the next step down? What's the next step down? What can I tell my teenager that instead of going and working for minimum wage at McDonald's, start your channel and let's start thinking through what could you show that will garner some advertising revenue, which will pay you at least the equivalent of minimum wage while you're actually exercising your creative muscle instead of your drone muscle. <laughs> 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 I think that's really compelling. Yeah, and we circle back to Westworld, of course, because once we have really good robots, then they're the ones working all these minimum wage jobs. <laughs> yeah, 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 no <laughs> doubt about that. Um, I find that really compelling because that's not something that's taught in high schools or colleges or business schools or really anywhere. It's it's how to find a niche, uh, how to find a, a niche, and how to develop an information product around that and target an audience and provide value and capitalize on it. Um, all of that is sort of a graduate course in entrepreneurship that you really can't find anywhere other than just to go do it. Right, and I think that part of the challenge with that 
is that you don't have to be a millionaire. You don't have to make a ton of money. So um, I don't know if you know this, Tom, but I spent a year on the internet marketing circuit and I was going to all these conferences where speaker after speaker after speaker was selling their coaching program from the stage. <laughs> and if you are one of the first seven people to sign up, I'm going to throw in this second course for free. <laughs> and people were like running to the back of the room to sign up for this thousand dollar course. It was a startling experience. Um, but I remember going out on stage once and saying, you know, if you make $275 a day, you need to take a deep breath and stop because you're making a hundred thousand a year and you're doing better than 96% of the world. So what's the rush to double that? Why isn't that enough? Maybe it's time for you to look a little bit inside and ask, what do you really need to be happy? as opposed to having this personal goal of double your revenue every year. And I can tell you that <laughs> the other speakers got really upset with me because <laughs> what they sell is they sell the dream of you being Elon Musk. Yeah. But the audience members, people came up and gave me hugs and they were like, thank you for giving me permission to not have to buy every one of these courses and make a million dollars a month. You know, and Tom, I know you've seen the same thing because that, oh, yeah. you know, sort of part of the community of the NSA, the, the sort of professional speakers, is that you want to like get them to like buy into your vision of the world. And yeah, it might make them better, but hey, it makes you 50 bucks. And if a thousand people make you 50 bucks each, you're doing pretty well. Yeah. Um, there, there is that, that small group in uh, Speakers Association, but that it's a pretty small group, though. You should package this up into a therapy course, yeah, and, and sell it for a, for a thousand. Yeah. And the first seven people who sign up with with code Futurati Podcast. But if your course. name is Trent, then I'll give you a hundred dollar discount, son, <laughs> and send you one of my 22, 23 books, whatever the hell. It is. An indeterminate number of books, but you'll get some of them. You'll <laughs> I'll send you a book on something for some reason. I'll give you a random box of stuff from my house. <laughs> oh, I do these, that actually. Some of these old sensors, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been to Dave's parties at his house and he, he actually is giving away stuff that he's uh, <laughs> reviewed in the past and it didn't quite cuss, cut mustard so that he didn't want to keep it in his house. So I see. Yeah. That's a and, good way to get um, yeah. a Zune or a, um, yeah. a fifth generation Blackberry or something. Uh, a, a flip flip phone a flip phone yeah <laughs> i think i might have still have my blackberry pearl somewhere and i know i have my zoom oh, in fact know. i remember when microsoft offered to send me one i'm like can you send me two because i want to demonstrate how they can talk to each other and i literally don't know another person on this planet that has one and they got really cranky <laughs> <laughs> so they sent me one and i couldn't demonstrate that feature no no <laughs> It's like it's like getting the first fax machine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you just have to wait till all the spammers show up. <laughs> uh, who do you fax to if you only have one machine? I still there? feel like some somehow you would get a, a spam fax from someone. Just, just, yeah, it sounds like some Zen koan, right? What's the sound of one hand clapping? Oh, yeah. Very similar to the sound of the only fax machine in the world receiving a fax. One fax, <laughs> one fax faxing. <laughs> you literally fax yourself, so it has something to do with it. <laughs> so um, you've got, you know, decades in the trenches of reviewing technology. I mean, what are some 
I don't know, broad trends that might be of interest to an audience that listens to a podcast like this one? <laughs> That's a really vague demographic. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you tried to picture one, you'd get it almost exactly right. Hunched over a computer writing code. Yeah. Reading science fiction. In the, in the back of the bus, lights <laughs> off, head, hat, hat pulled down. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> um, what I like is that I feel like the trend with consumer electronics is to make things more accessible. And that's in a couple of different dimensions, but things like Bluetooth, right? So pairing Bluetooth devices is much easier than it was even 10 years ago. And in terms of audio equipment, there are companies saying, there's a lot of people that need assistive hearing devices, but we don't need necessarily sell them $8,000 hearing aids. So what if we just take earbuds and add some extra circuitry so that they can be Bluetooth earbuds, you listen to music, but there's also another mode you can put them in where it just gives you more clarity on the voices that are around you so you can engage in conversation. And by the way, no one knows you're wearing a hearing aid because it looks like a really cool pair of earbuds. Nice. You know, things like that are terrific because the reality is, is that we as a species are paying the price of spending tens of thousands of hours staring at computer screens and thousands of hours with really loud music <laughs> literally like plugged into our brain and bypassing our hearing entirely you know yeah. so we need this assistive stuff it's the same thing we see with cars you know we have this sort of chicken and egg thing but cars are gaining more and more really sophisticated assistive technologies because we are getting more and more crappy at driving right? Because now there's 70 things that can distract us instead of three. If it was 1965, I might be eating a burger from McDonald's and playing with my AM radio, but that was about all the distractions I had. I certainly didn't have a cell phone giving me the update on the latest TikTok from my ex-girlfriend who I'm really mad at and I don't want to see it, but I'm driving and I'm in traffic and thank God my car is paying attention to the car in front of me because I've just already lost my attention span. Interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. so you you and I have gone to the consumer electronics show for many years out in Las Vegas. Um, this year was the first time it was virtual. Uh, what do you think was lost in that? How how would you quantify <laughs> the the pieces that were were left out because of that? Well, let's see. Is <laughs> Trent, is your audience G, P, G, R, X? I think it's fair to assume they're at least PG-13. Okay. We've sworn. So, we, we've, we've used swear words. Okay. So basically, this year's CES was like having sex with someone who wasn't actually in the room at the time. <laughs> I'm sure no one in our audience has any familiarity with what that is like. Um, it was super disappointing. Um I think the um, organization that runs the Consumer Electronics Show was woefully underprepared to do something interesting because I've seen like little PR agencies have done little virtual events that were better than CES with its thousands of dollars per vendor and thousands of vendors still participating. So I don't even know where all that money went, but that's, I guess, not my problem. Right. <laughs> What was it uh, like? I mean, it, yeah, I, I don't know anything about it. What what happened? Like, how do you arrange something like yeah, that? How, how many hours did you spend watching? 
Um, well, mostly I was just digging through the database. And, you know, my experience is that you end up, if you think about something like the Consumer Electronics Show, where there's probably 15 or 20 miles of exhibitor booths. Yeah. So you end up really spending the majority of your time at a trade show going from vendor to vendor. Yeah. Right? And so you so, lose the discoverability. You don't discover. Right. Well, you lose the discoverability, but your time, time-wise, you also gain like 70% of your time. So you can go and talk to a vendor and then boom, you're at the next vendor, right? Because it's just one click away. Yeah. But there was no discoverability. There was no, since you checked out the Samsung booth, you might be interested in four other companies that are part of its ecosystem. I mean, they didn't do anything like that. So it was sort of old school business where we were just wading through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of press releases, each of which was from a PR person that earnestly was saying and sending multiple messages saying, can we meet? Can we schedule? Can I get on your calendar? And it's just like, there are 700 people wanting to get on my calendar. And <laughs> I don't care if I spend the next 30 days doing this, it's going to be a nightmare. I won't remember anything. And no, I don't actually care about your company product. <laughs> you know, and it was yeah. just really hard to do that. Whereas, as you know, Tom well knows when we are at a physical CES, there is that discoverability. And I say it's it's sort of the same thing as the difference between like looking on Netflix and going to Blockbuster, right? So part of the experience of going to a Blockbuster or a library or a bookstore is that you go and you're like, oh, I want to go see what Douglas Preston's written. And you go straight to that section and you look at his books and right next to him is Mark Preston. I don't know who Mark Preston is, but that's an interesting looking spine, right? right. And at Blockbuster, you'd be like, I really want to go see some Kubrick. I'm just in the mood for Kubrick. And next to Kubrick is someone else. And you're like, oh, what's that movie? I mean, zombie strippers, that. How could that not be good, right? I want to watch that movie. <laughs> Wait, did I reveal too much about myself? <laughs> I think I think so, yeah. That's well, when everything becomes a database, right. yeah, but everything becomes a database, we lose all of that. You know, I mean, I'm sure I was not the only nerdy kid who liked looking things up in the dictionary because you could find all the words around it and you would have this discovery. I mean, kids used to read the encyclopedia. A, no streaming, B, no video games, right. but C, it was an amazing piece of discoverability. Yeah. And you would just stumble across things and say, oh, well, that's an aardvark? That's weird. Let me read about that. Yeah. yeah. And that's gone. I mean, our society just has not valued that as a, as a way of, I guess, consuming or processing information. And so everything becomes, I go on Netflix, I do a search, it shows me that match, I watch that movie, I'm done. Well, you have recommendation engines that's built into most of these streaming platforms and they stink. Well, what do you think's wrong with them? I, I, I'm actually working on one at work now. So what, what do you find uh, unsatisfying about it? <laughs> we could definitely talk offline about this too, but it turns out that a recommendation engine is super hard. And part of the problem with that is that generally speaking, people do not have discrete profiles. And so if I'm on Netflix and my daughter walks up and I've gone to the bathroom and she changes to a different show, that will ruin my recommendations for the next 10 years. Well, there, yeah, there is that problem. Um, but that's true. Um, <laughs> right. And then recommendations tend to be statistical. So like people that liked this movie also watched this movie and didn't turn it off in the first 90 seconds. So therefore, that's a movie you'll like, too. But you don't know why I watched the movie I just watched. Maybe it was for a school assignment. Maybe I watched it and hated it instead of liked it. 
I mean, it's interesting that Netflix took away the ability to rate movies. Interesting. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah. You know, you used to be able to thumbs up and thumbs down, and then that would affect its ratings engine. And I think they just realized that's an extraordinarily challenging problem from a computational perspective. Um, I really would like to have recommendation engines. And I know a lot of sites try to do that with books or music or videos or TV shows or something. But generally speaking, my experience is that it's extraordinarily shallow and it's mostly just statistical. You know, 18% of people that watched A Clockwork Orange also watched 2001 A Space Odyssey. So we're going to recommend that's the next movie you watch. And it's like, that's a totally different kind of movie with only one thing in common that is the same director. But that might not be enough for me to be happy with that recommendation. Yeah, there, there's some truth to that. I mean, the, the better sorts of hybrid uh, recommendation engines marry collaborative filtering and content-based recommendation. And they sort of get at that problem a little bit better than some of the ones you have experience with. So the idea is that, yeah, you, you can have the statistics, but layered on top of that, we need to have some consideration of what the hell is actually in this, what this movie is actually about, the genre and various other things. And th there are ways of trying to kind of come yeah. to grips with and, that. And what taxonomy are you actually using uh, yeah. to, to quantify what this is about? Um, yeah, and yeah. give me the chance to give you feedback. You know, we're going to recommend this movie. How do we do with this recommendation? No. But who knows? Maybe tomorrow I could do the same thing and get the same recommendation and say, damn, 2001? Yeah, I would, I'm totally down for watching that. <laughs> and then that becomes problematic because we're not the same people day to day. Yeah. And having a teen daughter living in my house, I can assure you, she's not <laughs> the same person every day. <laughs> I have a, a four-year-old daughter, so all of that is, is in front of me, all that joy. <laughs> You're already there, buddy. Yeah. She, she can be pretty cantankerous, and she's very strong-willed. Um, yeah, well, plus we're in different moods all the time, too. That's true, yeah. Yeah, emotionally we're not geared up to watch some things one day or might be the next. But If only we had solved that silo problem that Dave was bitching about at the top of the show, then his, his, his Apple Watch could talk to Netflix and be like, Dave's not feeling 2001 right now. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, like your little mood ring. That's an internet connected <laughs> mood ring. It's like, Ooh, you're in a really purple mood today. <laughs> People in a purple mood who watch this movie enjoyed this movie, <laughs> which probably would work better. Actually a billion dollar idea. That's a billion dollar idea. Yeah. We actually, uh, we, this morning we interviewed Elaine Pofelt on her book, uh, the million dollar one person business. So these people who scale up to a million dollars, annually in revenue who don't have any full-time employees. So I, I think somebody could take what we just did and, and run with it and make a million dollar one person business. Yeah. Well, and then take 10% of your revenue and donate it to a worthwhile charity. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> or your favorite podcast, just throwing that out there. Well, no, and then 30% to your favorite podcast. <laughs> you better go. the heck be Trent or you're offline. There you go. <laughs> so you're doing lots of movies right now yourself. Lots of video work. Um, how how are you leveraging that in your um, in your storytelling efforts? Right. Well, I mean, I believe that all communication is fundamentally storytelling. I believe what we're doing right now is storytelling, and what we're trying to simulate with this podcast is the experience of us all, including you, the listener, sitting around a fire, having a conversation. And the only piece that's missing, sadly, is you, the listener, saying, 
um, wait, can we go back? Can you talk about that again? Because I didn't understand that piece, right? So there's like a little bit less feedback loop. But fundamentally, I think that we humans are wired to want to hear stories. And so the purpose of any educator, the purpose of any entertainer, really the purpose of like much of how our government communicates with us has to come from that place of stories. And so that's really what I'm looking at. And I do a lot of YouTube. I do a lot of writing. I work with a lot of companies. You know, I'm a mentor for startups. I obviously teach at the university. But all of that is all about me trying to understand how do we tell stories? What makes a compelling story? And how can I convey a complex and interesting idea or maybe spread a meme from in the, in the more sort of traditional, like um, Richard Dawkins sense of right. it, you know, and convey ideas that I would like to infect people so that they might behave a little bit more in alignment with how I see how the world should be. Now, when you try to monetize that, um, <laughs> you, you <laughs> boom right to the money time. <laughs> uh, in, in the back, yeah, in the back of your head, though, you always have the money motive uh hanging around there and um and you know that certain things that you do will generate more money than others and and certainly uh we said we saw that last year i mean any news headline that came out that had the word covid and it got more uh more views than ones that didn't um now how how does that affect your uh the way you think about storytelling um it in the online world or does it um i'd like to say that it doesn't too much um i feel like i have maybe a bit of a blessing that i've worked so many years that i have a solid enough position that i don't have to constantly ask how will this generate revenue for me so i definitely do things for fun like reviewing movies i will be completely candid i don't get paid for that you know, I'm lucky if I get to see the movie for free, but I'll still do it and well, and still spend hours writing a movie review or something because I enjoy that form of media and I enjoy being able to be plugged in even just a tiny bit, even just like being able to get invited to digital Hollywood events by Variety or, or you know, the Hollywood Reporter or something. So I find that really fun, but that's really like a cost center for my sort of personal Dave world. So not everything I do has a profit motive, um, but when it comes to like YouTube, again, it's that trade-off. I will often review products that I want to play with or I want to try, or, you know, right now I'm using a really nice couple of hundred dollar audio technic or audio technica microphone. They sent me to review and it was like, win-win. I want that microphone. I can review it fairly and honestly. And then assuming it's good, which it is, then I can actually use that for years to come, you know? So I don't generate a ton of revenue off of my video content per se, but I definitely get some really cool gear out of it. And a lot of the companies will come to me or other companies will come to me and say, you clearly have deep expertise in producing video content. Can you work with us on this kind of content too? And it's just like, yeah, I could do that. It's gonna cost you. And they're like, that's all right. That's what we're ready to do. So do you have this uh, this movie plot brewing around in the back of your head uh, that's that's ready to get unleashed, uh, ready to make it onto Netflix? The zombie strippers. We've, we've yeah, already covered that. Yeah, we heard that. Yeah. Okay, that sounds interesting. 
So is this where I go, submitted for your approval? (laughs) (laughs) You're not on Trent's podcast. You're in the Twilight Zone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not really. I mean, I definitely at some point have thought about writing. I'd like to write some young adult science fiction because I find the genre interesting and I find young adult um, turns out to be just really good writing in a lot of cases, like Harry Potter, the whole Harry Potter series, which was fantastic. Really good, yeah. You know, was really aimed at, you know, junior high, high school kids. Yeah. Um, the Miss Peregrine's series has been really good. There's a number of different book series out there that weren't necessarily aimed at showing off how sophisticated their prose can be but really much more focused on the storytelling side of it. And I'd like to try doing that at some point. I don't know. And in terms of movies, I don't know. If I did a movie, I'm sure it'd end up being a horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) I think think young adult is a cool space to be into because you're, you're dealing with people who are forming their foundational conception of the world and their vision of good and evil and right and wrong and what they want out of their life. And you just have a huge impact with somebody at that age. And I mean, if you influence one Carl Sagan, I mean, that, that arguably could eclipse everything else you do in your life. But it really rather influence billions and billions. (laughs) (laughs) I I hope that joke goes over and people understand what's, uh, what's being done. I remember once walking down a library and I saw a book with the, on the spine, it just said billions and billions. And I was like, I bet that's a Carl Sagan book. And sure enough, it was, it was great. Um, One thing I'm curious about is that, is that you said all forms of communication our narrative, our story. And so I'd, I'm sympathetic to that. And uh, I, I'd, I'd like to kind of get into what you mean by that. So does that include even if I just point at something and say that's a rock? I mean, surely that's not narrative, right? Or, or would you say that it extends down even to that level? Any semantic utterance is necessarily narrative. No, I mean, any <laughs> semantic utterance can be whatever the heck you want it to be. But now let's... <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a guest just be like, no. <laughs> let's spin a scenario. So, so here we are. We are in a, you know, teaching a ninth grade geology class. We are walking through the field and we find this curious piece of igneous rock. And we pick it up and we say, Rock. You think the kids are going to be interested? No. But if we say, can you imagine 50 million years ago where we're walking was the bottom of an ocean and then a volcano erupted and the magma from the center of the earth shot up into the sky and solidified and cooled and just crashed through the water. And then millions of years later, all that water receded so we can stand here and this rock this is from that volcano. Which one do you think the kids are going to be more interested in? <laughs> well, I was riveted. <laughs> you, really, you really took me on a journey there. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's not so much that it, it's more of a pragmatic perspective. It's, it's not that literally everything you say is a story. It's just, in fact, when people communicate with each other, they almost always do so through the vehicle of a story. So there's an inchworm. <laughs> um, I don't think everything we do is about storytelling necessarily, but I think that we want to hear good stories. I mean, you know, when we're sitting in 
at some point being able to enjoy a beer with some friends, that one person who everyone loves having show up is the one that can like tell you they got a parking ticket, but take 20 minutes to do so because they make it a hilarious story and you're in tears and you're like, (laughs) Oh my God, I'm buying the next round. You're so funny. And they won because now they got free beer. That's true. My cousin (laughs) is that way. Just any, any story he tells, he, you know, he went to the mailbox, got his mail, came back. It's hilarious. We're all just dying the whole time. I know exactly what you mean. I mean, Tom is the same way. Every time Tom and I are together, I'm in tears and breathing, (laughs) having breathing difficulty because he's so hilarious. If his batteries are fully charged, he can't be quite funny. Um, Yes. So have you given any thought to sort of the deep roots of that? So I'm thinking of Yuval Harari, whose book Sapiens advances the thesis that stories and shared myths are kind of the secret to our success. It's it's how we've outcompeted all the other life on Earth. Uh, I mean, have you have you given thought to that? the power that stories have to unite people. Um, Yeah, I absolutely agree with what you just said. I mean, (laughs) when I look at my cats or watch my daughter's dog or something, they clearly do not have higher cognitive processing. You know, they're not stupid necessarily. And they certainly understand and reflect the emotions of the people in their lives. And I'm sure they behave entirely differently if they're in a feral pack in the middle of the wilderness. Right. <laughs> but they don't have the ability to have uh, oral history. They don't have the ability to establish behavioral guidelines based on stories. And they don't have the advantage or the ability to build a more complex tomorrow based on where we are today. How do you think story has changed over time? Well, I guess I want to ask two questions. What do you think has stayed the same and what do you think has changed dramatically as a result of us all migrating onto the internet, um, to social media, going through channels like YouTube or, uh, or, or these other platforms that are available now? I mean, so, some things have changed. Some things are the same. What are your thoughts on that? Um, hang on. I got to check my text messages. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's changed. What's changed is that we as a society have tacitly agreed that duration of attention is not an important currency. Uh And we could classically go back and blame MTV because MTV got a brunt of this when they introduced music videos and those music videos had cuts, right? I mean, I guess D.W. Griffith did it first with things like Birth of a Nation, where he actually said, instead of having a linear movie show you minute by minute what's happening, we can actually cut that movie and create tension and create emotions by using cunning editing. But more and more over time, we expect the world to move faster. And you can see this where... You know, when Tom was a teenager, if he wanted to communicate with grandma, he would write a letter. And if she wrote back in three weeks, he would be really psyched. It's like, wow, grandma's on the ball. This is so cool. Imagine (laughs) my letter traveled halfway around the U.S. in a week. That's amazing. And now if I text my son and he doesn't respond in like four minutes, I'm calling the police. (laughs) Like something's wrong. What the hell? (laughs) You know, are you in a gutter somewhere? Right. Yeah. I was was talking about that to my fiance the other day that once upon a time, not very long ago, 20 years ago, when somebody left the house, you had no idea what was happening in their life, what they were doing, whether they were alive or dead. And I find that so alien now because for my whole adult life, I've always been able to keep tabs on everybody, you know, and we text back and forth and, you know, exchange information or don't forget to pick up milk on the way home. But no, when Tom was a teenager, if, when you left on the covered wagon, I mean, God only knows if you're coming back. You had to fight off the damn dinosaurs. <laughs> 
because of those igneous rocks. Right. <laughs> that came through the ocean and, and through that, that whole majestic journey that Dave, Dave walked us through earlier. Um, let, let me test your futurist thinking here. What's the act of watching television going to be like 20 years from now? <laughs> I mean, are we still going to be looking at an appliance in the front of the room? Will we have digital wallpaper? Will it be a projected image? Will it be three-dimensional? Will we interact with it? Can we touch things and buy things? Can we change the plot line? Can we make I'm the sorry, face? I thought you were asking a question, not 109. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that we will have the ability to have a more interactive experience but I believe that it will be the case for a very long time that people will nonetheless default to a consumption experience. And you see that with the internet, right? So there might be tens of thousands of people producing content on the internet, but there are billions of people using the internet every single day. So that disparity, I think, reflects a perfectly reasonable differentiation in our society between creators and consumers. And I think that will continue to be the case for all media through all time. I mean, I can connect with my favorite author and we can have a dialogue. Sure, maybe there's an AI, the Stephen King AI, and we can, you know, the AI and I can create this super creepy horror story. But more likely than not, the AI will start talking and I'll shut up and I'll be like, even if you're not really Stephen King, you're a hell of a storyteller. I just want to listen. Right? Okay. Well, there was that Black Mirror movie, The Bandersnatch, and I never watched it. I don't, I don't know how it did, but I know that that was one of the more high profile experiments in choosing your own movie ending or something like that. So I, I know you're a big movie guy. Did, did you watch that? Do you think it failed? Is it the harbinger of, of, of future developments in that area or not? Um, I thought it was super interesting. Um, and one of the challenges they had was that it turned out that to need a lot more sophisticated technology than most of the Netflix devices people used. So I couldn't watch that on my Apple TV. I had to use my computer because it was a more interactive device. But you could tell that they actually had been testing it and really were careful not to disappoint people because the basic story was that every so often there would be a decision point and you, the viewer, could make that decision. And then you would go on a different path through the content based on, does he jump? Does he not jump? Does he hit this person? Does he give them a beer, right? But you could get to dead ends. And the way they designed it was that if you got to a dead end, it would automatically back you up to the previous decision point so that you could make the other decision to see what would happen. Interesting. Right. <laughs> and it was like they were afraid to have people say, what do you mean that he like got married in the end? He died in the end. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, it's just like the movie Clue. When Clue came out, they had, I think, five different endings and they would randomly put them in different movie theaters. And so you could go imagine going to watch a movie the second time and you're like, wait, it didn't end that way. That's right. weird. <laughs> Interesting. Right? Um, so as a gimmick, it's fun. But the fact is, is I think that um, as much as we want stories, we also want predictability. I mean, this is why your four-year-old wants you to read the same book every night, even though you're like, can we read like one other book? Can we alternate between two books? Right. No, let's watch Frozen again and again and again. <laughs> I again, have no idea again. what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> right? But that repetition is safety and comfort. And I think that that's going to be 
cognitively our biggest obstacle to creating amazing interactive fully immersive experiences in media in five or ten years <laughs> one of the things i wanted to ask you about the shortening attention span is this opposite trend i've noticed as well and i mean i completely agree it's it's manifestly the case that we are losing the ability to uh, uh to, to keep focused on one thing at a time but it, it's also the case, I think, that you've got shows and, and universes like Game of Thrones, for example, or Lost, where it is orders of magnitude more complicated than anything you would have found on television you know, a decade ago. So I guess in, in the closing minutes here, like, do you have any thoughts on how those two things play out? Um, I think that the, the, the <laughs> producers are rewarding us for being able to pay attention. And I think that's excellent. I love Game of Thrones. I used to have watch parties every two weeks. My friends would come over and we'd watch two episodes and they'd be like, oh my God, it's so-and-so. And I'd be like, who is that? I'm like, <laughs> he was in like 43 episodes ago and then he vanished. So I don't have the best memory for these sort of shows. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate having a complicated world. It's just like if you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, truth be told, it's an astonishing cognitive accomplishment that they have taken thousands of stories across thousands of comics and graphic novels and now movies. And there are certain branches in movies that they backed away from. And they're like, we're not going to really deal with that element of the story, but things all fit together in an amazing way. And a film that comes out in five years will still fit into that universe. No one bothered to do that 50 years ago. Right. I mean, if you did the Thin Man series, which was a great 1930s, 1940s detective series, they didn't really fit together with this extended narrative concept. But now we really do expect that from something like Lost or something like The Sopranos. I mean, don't put me in episode four and say everything in episode three didn't happen. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's really disappointing. Then it's just like now it's just episodic TV and now I'm not engaged because that's my expectation. I kind of want to end this interview in the middle of a sentence now. <laughs> and, then, and nobody's going to know. <laughs> I do. So Wait. let me just finish it with one more. <laughs> All right, Dave Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. It's been good fun, guys. Thanks. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.